Let's turn in our Bibles to Galatians this morning. It's good to be in the Word again uh, this morning and to fellowship with you. And I'm just going to read a passage from Galatians 5 that we began to cover last week, but I was not satisfied that we could cover it in the way that I wanted to cover it. So we're there again. Galatians 5, beginning at verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. This is a exhortation to the flock, and it is a positive and a negative. It is a, this is what you need to be doing and who you need to be towards each other in the body of Christ. And here is a big warning if you do the opposite. You could suddenly be committing a spiritual genocide as a church. It's as if God is saying directly through Paul to these churches, and it's inscripturated in inspired scripture as a warning. Don't do this because God could come and remove the lampstand of a church through this sin of biting and devouring each other, consuming each other, becoming a consumptive. Well, last week I began our time trying to define Christian freedom. I called it the fifth freedom, playing off of FDR's famous four freedoms that he spoke of during World War II, the freedom of speech and worship, the freedom from want, the freedom of from freedom from fear everywhere. But the fifth freedom is something that perhaps he couldn't mention because this is for the church. The church's freedom is a freedom that's different than the world's freedom. This is the freedom from the tyranny of our sinful nature. Put in the context of Galatians, it's freedom from legalism and freedom from licentiousness. Both are categories that are reacting to the law, by the way. Both are a form of legalism. If you measure your spirituality in your Christian life as something that is categorically different from just knowing Christ, then you really don't have true Christianity at all. Christianity is knowing Christ Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's where we're headed in the end of Galatians 5, living the life of the Spirit where we know Christ and are being conformed to look and be more like the one whom we love supremely. Legalism and licentiousness are on either side of the law. Legalism is trying to keep all of the law and even any extraneous elements that you could add to the law to try to make yourself or keep yourself right with God. That's legalism. Licentiousness is fleeing from the law, saying, you don't own me. And uh, I am understanding what the law says, but I'm not going to do it. My spirituality is irrespective from the law. So both are forms of legal dynamics. What the law does for you as a way to save you or so you think, or what the law can't do for you and your resistance to it is your spirituality. But both are dead-end streets. Both are endless uh, or or lifeless cul-de-sacs that you go into that cannot 
get you to heaven. There's only one person that can bring you to heaven, and that's Jesus Christ. Apart from him, we can do nothing, and yet he is calling himself the way, the truth, and the life, so we can go to heaven through him. The worst thing that we could ever hear is, depart from me. And what is the condition of being shown the door from heaven? I never knew you. We know God and we know Christ. The sheep know the shepherd's voice and we follow, we hear the shepherd's voice, we follow that path and that's the path that God has given Christians. And in following Christ, there is a tremendous joy and blessing of spiritual freedom. And I want you as a believer individually and specifically here corporately to Enter into the joy of the fellowship of the freedom that is found in Christ. And that's what we're describing here. There is joy to be had in the Christian life. There is spirituality to be had that's not some just mystical, ethereal thing that isn't practical. But it's the joy of relationships in the body of Christ that fill our hearts every day. We've been called to this freedom. Look at verse 13. For you've been called to this freedom. Brothers, he's endearingly talking to them as family members. Chapter 5, verse 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. We're to stand firm in this. We're to know what is it to be free in Christ. Well, first of all, as we talked about last week, Christian freedom is not the world's freedom. It's not the same thing. People are crying for a freedom to sin, a freedom to live like the world with zero accountability. Even the world's laws say that you can't be entirely free. That's anarchy. That's something that is a misconstrual. Even within the church where people are defining Christian freedom in terms terms of worldly freedom. They're saying, again, this licentiousness, you don't own me. I can do whatever I want to do because I'm in grace. I'm in Christ. Nothing can change that, and so I'm free to do whatever I want to do. And that is not Christian freedom. That's called being enslaved to your sin, to the flesh, to Satan. You're enslaved. You're in bondage. Even if you are a believer living that way under that rationale, you're enslaved You're in bondage. That's not joy-filled Christianity. You hear the words of John, these things I've written to you, that your joy may be made what? Full or complete. Christianity is about being free and about being joy-filled, not enslaved to our flesh. If you look at verse 13 again, you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Don't give yourself permission to flesh out, as I used to say as a teenage Christian. You're just fleshing out, man, right? But it's true. There is this picture here of the opportunity for Christians who still are dealing with their flesh. We still have the flesh. We still have an unredeemed side of us. We are we have the principle of remaining sin that's described in Romans chapter 7. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Listen to what Paul said, Romans 7:18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. And then he clarifies that because he is in Christ, the Holy Spirit is in him. But what does he mean by nothing good dwelling in him? He says that is In my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry out, carry it out. Yeah, in your flesh, you cannot. 
Don't set up a proverbial beachhead or a military post for the flesh, which is really where people will rationalize sinning, rationalize looking at bad media, rationalize allowing themselves to be drunk, rationalize allowing themselves to have hateful speech and rationalizing all kinds of sins in the flesh saying, I have freedom, I have this joy to do this and really it is bondage. Well, Galatians gives us the way out. It's a Christian manifesto on freedom. It shouldn't be our temptation to do whatever we want to do. Israel did whatever was right in its own eyes, Judges 21, 25, and that was bondage, not freedom. So what is Christian freedom? It's a new kind of slavery. Christian freedom is a new kind of slavery. It's not like the world's freedom. Christian freedom is something that the world would look at as odd or strange. How how odd is it for us to feel bound to each other in Christ? We are called servants of Christ, and here in verse 13, we're called to serve one another. The word there is from the word doulos, it's a command, and it's to be enslaved to each other. How freeing is that, that as we look at each other in the body of Christ at church and we say, I am your servant. We are not masters with many slaves, we are slaves individually with many masters here this morning. We're enslaved to each other. When you accept that reality, it is freeing spiritually, freeing Spiritually, it's kind of like when you accept the suffering that God has allowed to happen in your life, physical, spiritual, practical, circumstantial, when you accept that as something that God is working for your good, James 1 says, consider that all joy. That's freeing joy in the Christian life. It's where a believer says, I can't do as I please anymore. I'm living a life that is outward towards others, not self-centeredness that looks inward. This is the paradox of the Christian life that fills our souls with joy. It can't be forced. It's made by the Holy Spirit. It's like becoming a slave in Old Testament Israel who wants to stay with his master as a bond slave. We are bond slaves for Christ. Last week we began point two, which is that Christian freedom is our life's aim. Look at verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is a principle built out of Leviticus. It's quoting Leviticus 19 where Moses wrote these words. And Paul is saying that all of the law is is boiled down to this single word. Think about it. How bold is that? Paul is saying Genesis to Malachi... The law, the historical books, the poetic books of the Old Testament, the prophets, major and minor, all are boiled down to living it out through this word. Love your neighbor as yourself. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said that the legalist will try to multiply rules and multiply laws. It's the idea of multiplying things to try to make yourself right with God. But the gospel is a gospel of condensation. You're you're able to condense everything down to simplicity. 
The gospel moves us towards simplicity. It's loving Christ. What does it mean to grow? You love Christ more and more. You look like Christ more and more. The simplicity of this command is simply to say you learn to love other people by the power of the Spirit. And in that way, you're actually fulfilling the whole law. You're fulfilling all of what the Old Testament meant or means. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. Life is way too complex to codify or codify spirituality. But this boils it all down. Well, I want to build verse 14 back with verse 13 again, if you'll allow me to do that. I want to I just burrow down just a minute more into verse 13, because I think this amplifies verse 14. Because if you are allowing yourself to live in the flesh, you will not be able to love each other in Christian community. If your life is filled with an inward focus where you are rationalizing your sin, your hidden sins, your secret sins, your private sins, your public sins, then you are not able to spiritually live out Christian community. You can't love each other in a way that is freeing and fulfilling. The opportunity for the flesh. What is the flesh? It's the sarks. It's what one person called the clothes. It's not the clothes on our bony skeleton, but our fallen human nature inherited from our parents that they inherited from their parents. It's twisted self-centeredness that is the natural proclivity to sin because we're not yet glorified. So instead of living there, we're supposed to live to serve one another through love. The opposite of Living in the flesh is living in love with other people. If you don't love people, you are probably, as a believer, enslaved to the flesh. Freedom doesn't exploit other people. It doesn't use other people. Freedom is expressed through love towards other people looking for their needs. The world defines love as lust, which is self-centeredness. Most of media is defining love in terms of lust. Have you ever noticed that? Because lust and immorality sells. Why does it sell? Because it hooks right into a person's flesh, whether a believer or an unbeliever, and it it connects that flesh to that wrong-headed, anti-Christian, anti-Christ definition of love, which is really lust, the lust of the flesh. That's what we have to avoid. We have to, to... Believe that we should not be enslaved to lust. It's the freedom from slavery by becoming enslaved to other people in Christian community. This is my version of trying to define for us what a healthy church looks like. That's really my preaching purpose this morning. I desperately want Anchorage Grace Church to be healthy because I believe if we have a Christian community... That is healthy, where we are selfless, where we're built in selflessness, not living individually, inwardly in the flesh, but living for each other in health as a family for one another. We will become such a compelling community that people will be at the doors lining up, wanting in because they'll know about us. They'll see something that is utterly different than what the world pumps out into people's minds that is so empty. It's so vacuous to live inwardly rather than 
outwardly. And the only way you can live outwardly is if you as an individual believer are not being enslaved or ensnared or satanically argued into living for pleasing your flesh. So you have to solve that issue and then look outwardly and enjoy the flock. Stop enjoying the lust. Enjoy the love. You see the difference? And this is all found in this word, love your neighbor as yourself. This is a Sunday school verse that's memorized by people in Sunday school. Now, I'm going to just open this up by bringing us to another outline point, which is the intent of the law. What is, what is the intent of the law? The intent of the law is to fulfill it. The word fulfill here in verse 14, you see that the whole law is fulfilled in this, is actually a word plurao, which is the same word for being filled in the spirit. Or let the word of Christ, Colossians 3, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. It's the idea of being filled with the fullness of God. Back to Ephesians, where Paul prayed for the church there to be filled, to know the height, depth, length, and breadth, and to know the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. It's having a heart that is filled in the Holy Spirit. And that's what he's talking about here. The law, the intent of the law is fulfilled spiritually. It is fulfilled in this. If you look at Verses 19, just quickly, the works of the flesh. This is the opposite of fulfilling the intent of the law. In the Christian community, these are the sins of the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife. Now we get into the communal sins. Strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. Out of these descriptions, at least seven of them are committed within a community, within a church community. That's what Paul is calling out here. He's saying that you churches in the Galatian area are sinning in this way. You have to identify these and not be enslaved to them. Charles Wesley, who was writing about heaven on earth in his hymn for a thousand tongues to sing, says... He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. So by uniting with the Son and by yielding yourself to the Holy Spirit, you cease from acting autonomously to acting in a posture of dependence. Again, you're under a lordship. You're either under the world's Lordship, which is a power greater than yourself, or you're under Christ's lordship, which is the power that we must survive on and what we live on in Christian relationships. You can live in the United States and say that that's freedom, or you could live in the UK, you could be in Afghanistan, you could be in North Korea, and you would carry this same problem wherever you are geographically, wherever you are circumstantially, wherever you are governmentally, wherever you are politically. If you are enslaved to the lust of your flesh, this is the fruit of your flesh, which is verses 19, 20, and 21. So what is the intent of this law? Well, Jesus, when he answered... The Pharisee, who was a lawyer, said, when the lawyer said, teacher, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus went to Deuteronomy 6, said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You've got to love God first. 
And then he goes right to Leviticus 19.18, the same place Paul went. And he says, love your neighbor as yourself. For the whole law rests on these two commands. I think Paul is assuming the first command for the church and saying, you love God. And then you're able to love your neighbor as yourself. Then you're able to really please God by loving your neighbor. Not in some sort of plastic performance, but in real love. The whole law is fulfilled in this way. It's, the law is not being spoken of here academically. I want you to be clear on that. The law definitely was given to Israel for a purpose. And it exposed their sin. It taught Israel that they could not keep the law. They could not sacrifice animals enough to save themselves. Romans teaches that, that the law um, exacerbated sins. It, it even revealed them and exposed people for how sinful they really are. But also the law, it's important to understand, is devotionally given. God gave the law for, according to Deuteronomy 6, for the children of Israel who were going into the promised land, for them to fear God. And we don't have time to really look there, but it was the idea of the law of the Lord being passed down from generation to generation to generation as they were going into the promised land. And really, it's not just the law in terms of being memorized or being obeyed, but the law in terms of God's revelation of how we fear God. And if you want to parent well, if you want your kids to grow in Christ You have to find a way as a parent in your situation with your children to pass the fear of God down to them. That's the key to parenting. Not fear of God externally, but reverential awe of who God is. They need to feel the weight of God's glory in your home. And that's what what this passage was speaking to in Deuteronomy and also in Leviticus David said, oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in all of the Bible. It's talking about the Old Testament law. I've hidden God's word in my heart that I might not sin against God. 119, Psalm 119, 11. There's devotion there. It's devotion there. But it's a devotion that turns communal. In the Old Testament, it was the promised land. It was that community centered on the law. In the New Testament, in the New Covenant, it's a spiritual community that's based on Christ, where you love Christ so much and you love people so much that you find yourself fulfilling the law, even though you're not under it in the same way Israel was. That's what Paul's doing here. It's almost like, if I can dare say this, we are accidentally fulfilling the law of God Even though we didn't set out to do that. We love Christ. We love people. And guess what? I love my neighbors, myself. It's the overflow of love for Christ and union in the Holy Spirit. Look at Galatians 6, verse 2. Just look down there. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That's what we're talking about. You reach out to people. You hold people up. And by doing that, you're fulfilling the intent of the law, not as a moral code. The mark of true spirituality, the mark of a healthy church is that you can get along with each other in the body of Christ. So what does obedience look like? A lot of people will create what is known as a hyper grace movement or a new morality where in the name of love and and humility people say well i don't need to obey laws anymore 
There's no morality here. There's no morals here. And I don't think that's exactly right. I think that's an errant street that people are taking where they're moving away from Scripture and commands of Scripture and exhortations of Scripture. If you look at Titus chapter 2, at the end of Titus 2, what Paul told uh, Titus to do flies in the face of this. After he gives all these commands in chapter 2, look at verse 15. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. There are commands in Scripture to be obeyed, just like there were commands given to Israel in the Old Testament. But I want to talk about what it looks like to obey a law that was given from the Old Testament according, but doing it as a New Testament Christian according to the Spirit. And I want to do that by just giving you a few principles about the law from the Bible. So buckle up. If you're an academic person or you like to take notes, you might want to do that. Otherwise, just find it online this week because I put my notes there anyway. A couple things about the law. I just want to lay some groundwork because it's an important discussion because we have to understand why do we read the Old Testament. We're not going to fall prey to Marcionism, this, this guy in church history that said don't worry about the Old Testament anymore. We don't, want, we don't need to know about that because we're completely free of the law and it has nothing to do with this. That's not true at all. There is continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I want to build that bridge and then show you how you apply this command as we bring things to a close in a few, what do, we, what do we know about the law? Well, first of all, God's nature has never changed, and so neither does God's standards. They never change. They're bound up in his holy character. So the law shows us that. Although we're not bound under the system of the law, just like the Old Testament Christians were, Christians genuinely love others, and by doing that, they fulfill the moral elements of the law. So the Old, Test, the Old Covenant, the New Covenant... They, they both demand heart service. Old covenant historically for Israel and new covenant for Christians. Remember the rebuke of Isaiah 29, 13? They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Jesus repeated that, Isaiah's words, to the Pharisees. This is something that directly applies to us as New Testament Christians. What we're saying when we sing when we, when we read the word of God, has to be hitting our hearts or it's not real, it's not genuine, and it's not spirit-filled. Deuteronomy, Joshua, 1 Kings all have references to people needing to incline their hearts to the word of God. Also, the law, when it's mentioned in the New Testament, it's mentioned in terms of its moral, civil, and ceremonial dimensions. There aren't three divisions of the law where two are gone, the civil and ceremonial part, but the moral part we keep. We're still under that. That's, that's a wrong way to look at the law. That's not true. Some say, well, we're not in that civil government anymore. We're not doing Old Testament sacrifices, but we're still under Moses' law. No, Mosaic, the Mosaic law passed away. All of it did. So we're no longer under the law's prescriptions, but believers by the Spirit still fulfill the law. In Christ, in his life, in his death and his resurrection, he did away with the law. He fulfilled it perfectly. He lived it perfectly. He fulfilled it ceremonially by dying on the cross as the perfect lamb of God. But he also fulfilled it. He is the point of the law. He's the point of all of the Old Testament. All of the Bible was pointing to Jesus. It was all pointing to him and should be interpreted in light of him. Jesus said, don't think I didn't 
that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Paul is describing what it looks like to fulfill the law practically. This isn't a doing religion. This is a fulfilling religion. We aren't keeping the law for acceptance or our Christian justification. We are obeying the law by love and by the empowerment of the Spirit, which is fulfilling the law in our sanctification. We've been delivered from the evil age, Galatians 1.4 says. And Galatians 3.1-5 says, You have been given the Holy Spirit so that you will be fulfilling the law of Christ. It's kind of a... It, we, we have the pressure of studying the scripture and seeing what's there. And then we have the pressure off because we know that we are, as we are united to Christ and obeying him, the moral norms of the Old Testament are going to be fulfilled through the Holy Spirit. Listen to how Paul said this in Romans 13. He describes exactly what is going on in verses 8 through 10. Romans 13, 8 through 10. Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. You see that? Hopefully all that I've said before this shows you that. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So you can't claim to be a loving person if you're committing adultery. You can't can't claim to love Christ. You may be a believer who does these things, but you can't with confidence claim that you are in love with Christ and in love with the body of Christ if you're covetous, if you're wanting what that person has and it's an idol in your heart and you hate that person because of what they have and you do not have. You're murdering them in your heart. You're stealing from them in your heart or actually doing those things. Love takes care of these things. These moral norms, they, they define the contours of love. Love is defined through Paul's reference here of the law. It's not a rule book, but it's prompting of the Spirit. It's moral norms. It's not a codification of what we're supposed to do, like some sort of Jewish commentary. It's serving and edifying people in light of the love of Christ. It's living a loving life, serving people in accordance with the gospel. One person put it this way, and I adapted it to a Kratz illustration. It's like raising kids. When kids are looking at the road in the busy street out there and you're, they're sort of under the law, they're in the old covenant system for the first several years of their lives. If you go out into that road, I'm going to pray an imprecatory prayer on you where fiery serpents are going to come into your bed and bite your toes off. No, just kidding. I've never said that. Now I have. But, but you know, it, you, you, you're afraid as a parent for your children. You don't want them to rush out into the street and get killed. And so you do warn them that corporal punishment will be coming if you go this direction or that direction. But hopefully, over time, you teach them why they shouldn't go out. They learn in their consciences not to go out into the road. They learn to play in the street carefully with their own mind evaluating situations. 
And they're led by their own internal promptings as to what to do and not to do. That's parenting. That's moving someone from external obedience to internal obedience, which is what is fostered in the new covenant. We are responding by the Holy Spirit. What does this mean for a church? Well, a strong, vibrant, flourishing Christian community has a witness for Christ and people will want in. Thinking of kids, it was funny. I was able to see the uh, Voiles family over, over the time down in Southern California. They're there. They have, remember, they had six kids. We have six kids. And so we got together with them. Some of us did. And Damien was talking about the fact that uh, he used to find my kids in the road because we live in the neighborhood right over here by the church. And he would find them walking home. And he said, I, more than a handful of times, I would pick your kids up and take them home for you because you had left them out in the cold and street to fend for themselves. And so I guess I could be taking things too far. Well, if you look at verse 15, it says, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out. That word but there is a connector to verse 14. The idea of loving your neighbor as yourself is connected in Christian community to what we say or do not say about our neighbors. Speech is found within the boundaries of what it looks to fulfill the law, fulfilling the law of love with our speech, with our communication as communicators within the body of Christ. It's more than communication. Love is self-sacrifice. Love is doing things, of course, but speech is really on the, the forefront of Paul's mind. Speech is what comes out of the heart, out of the mouth that is reflecting what's going on in the heart. Proverbs 19.11 says we're to be slow of anger and it's a glory to overlook an offense. We're not supposed to do that. We're not supposed to harbor things against people because when you do it comes out in what you say about people. James 4.11, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother judges his brother, speaks evil against the law and judges the law. See, there it is again. It's judging the law. The Old Testament law is what James is talking about, but he's talking about in terms of a new covenant, New Testament application. If you're speaking evil, if you're talking people down, you are ignoring the intention of the law in your heart, what should be happening. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. Remember, Ephesians 4.25, speak the truth in love. It's love in action. If you let the sun go down on your anger, Ephesians 4.27 says, it gives the devil an opportunity. Think about it. Think about the spiritual dynamics in terms of our choices of speaking about each other or not speaking about each other, building each other up or tearing each other down. If you want the church to be a healthy Christian community where people are known for their love for each other, we need to speak lovingly to each other. This is what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. As you would want to be spoken of, you're speaking of others. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his very good but thick and convicting book, Life Together, said this about speaking within the community. It's pretty strong medicine. Thus, he says, if it must be a decisive rule of all Christian communal life that each individual is prohibited from talking about another Christian in secret. 
He goes on explaining that often we combat our evil thoughts most effectively, I like this, if we absolutely refuse to allow them to be verbalized. Says where this discipline of the tongue is practiced right from the start, individuals will make an amazing discovery. They'll be able to stop constantly keeping an eye on others, judging them, condemning them, and putting them in their places, and thus doing violence to them. They can allow other Christians to live freely, just as God has brought them face to face with each other. It's where you're happy for people to be face-to-face with each other, and you're not in a posture of condemnation. And this is, back to our header, and the whole theme and thrust of part one and part two, this is Christian freedom. You talk about people, and you're dogging people, and you're hating people in your heart, and it's coming out of your mouth, and you're verbalizing the temptations that are stirring inside, and they're coming out, you're enslaved to your flesh. You've given your flesh a mission control center, a beachhead, You've been ensnared to your own flesh and you're living inwardly rather than outwardly and you are enslaved. You're not free. To be free is to be free from this sin. When this sin is left unchecked and unbridled, guess what? The church turns into the Lord of the Flies. A scarring book that I was forced to read in junior high school, right? Technologies are a warning as well. We can become dehumanized. If you begin to tear each other up through emails or through texting, they're dehumanized systems of hate or through whatever other, you know, versions of social media on your phone. I won't say Facebook anymore because nobody, nobody uses Facebook anymore, right? Whatever. It's, but it is the dehumanization of communication, where there isn't facial expression or intonation or, or heart behind what you're saying or not. And, and really what's gone is accountability. Even if it's time and date stamped, it's still dehumanized. It's robotized in terms of communicating. And out of that emotionless conversation, there could be great damage done. I've seen people in the body of Christ, leaders in the body of Christ, not here, other place, but I've watched just diatribes be written where it's just, you know, it's, it's just papers and papers that are printed out from emails where it was like, well, you know, it was this, and then this person's responding in paragraphs, and it's just, it's like a bizarre courtroom through email that's awful and destructive. This is not Christian freedom. It's not the This, you know, Christian freedom is not the world's freedom. It doesn't give us permission to sin. And then point three, Christian freedom builds others up and never tears them down. The clear warning here is that the church can destroy itself. It says, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out. The picture is that of a feeding frenzy or a pack of wild animals going for each other. This is the Christian community becoming a Practical, consumptive, it's the exact opposite of love, and it's free reign to tear each other apart with their tongues. It's a clear progression here of an animal. It bites its prey, then tears at the flesh until it is entirely consumed. It could be a picture of the fiery serpent scene of Numbers 21. Here's the point. If this sin is allowed to go on in the church... And people are sparring against people mano a mano. Nobody wins. 
The final scene in this act is you're consumed by one another. Nobody comes out a winner in this practice. A church building may still exist. A crowd may still come, but the Holy Spirit has left the people. Galatians here are faced to make a decision. They're talking about each other probably in terms of, oh, I'm doing the law rightly and they are ignoring the law or, hey, they're bound to the law still and I'm free and they're not. They're pivoting off the law, measuring themselves in terms of how they're reacting to the law instead of saying, I love Christ and I'll accept you for who you are. I love you. Will you love me? That's spiritual health. They were using their license as a license to kill, to commit spiritual suicide, to become a church that is now a community center. Community center. Calvin says the devil tempts us to disputes that the disagreement of members within the church can lead to nothing but the ruin and consumption of the whole body. Listen to this, and this is way back when, 1500s. How unhappy, how mad it is that we who are members of the same body should voluntarily conspire together for mutual destruction. In this context, the legalism is to do what Spurgeon said, to destroy love, to preserve ceremony, is to kill the child in order to preserve its clothes. Spurgeon, he said, I... I'd rather be, I don't want to be bitten at all, but if I'm going to be bitten, I'd much rather be bitten by a dog than a sheep. That hurts more. It's more painful to be bitten by godly people. Psalmist said, it is not an enemy that reproached me. Then I could have borne it. Paul must have known these false teachers were creating this satanic environment, and false teaching does that. Confusion does that. People team up with each other, and you have dissension and squabbling and people to struggle in the struggle in the arena to death they're like animals that gnaw at each other with fierce criticism and hatred and poisonous speech but on the other hand when the holy spirit liberates believers to restrain this kind of evil not giving free reign to this kind of evil but being led by the impulses of the holy spirit then that church is free What's the remedy? The remedy is being filled by the Spirit. That's what we're going to look at. What does it look like to be filled by the Spirit? Look at verse 22. All right, you're biting and devouring each other. You're consuming each other. Or you have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's one or the other, the flesh or the Spirit. How do you know if you're in the Spirit? Well, are you raising your voice to win arguments? Are you angry when you're disagreed with? Do you have to be right? Spiritually speaking, it's fine to contend for the truth and state the truth and restate the truth in patience and love. Contending for the truth is the only fight worth fighting. Something I learned and we talked about this week at the Shepherds Conference. The only thing worth fighting for is the truth, not to be right. You want the truth to be contended for because it's the key to life, to spiritual life for others. 
And God will defend the truth through you, but he might not defend you because he might want you to suffer if you fight people. The remedy for this is a spirit-filled love. And the warning is the disastrous result of verse 15. You'll be consumed by one another. There's no winners in this final act. There's no winners when there's hatred and gossip pushing the the church toward its own genocide. People rationalizing this sin, indulging in the flesh. I like, and I know I'm over time a little bit, but Spurgeon's sarcasm is um, something I have to, uh, it's funny. It's really good. He's great. At least I think so. I'm having a moment here. Anyway, he's confronting his church. He's saying, have you been converted? I pray God undo such a conversion and begin again with you. So there are lots of people who need to be unconverted before they can be converted to have the rubbish they built up by themselves pulled down before Christ can begin. I know, he's pretty sarcastic. MacArthur was sarcastic this week too. He said that it can get so bad within a church that he's gone up to people and said, you know what, I'm not gonna recognize you when you're in heaven, when you're finally glorified because you're gonna be so different than you're acting right here on earth. We'll have to reintroduce ourselves to each other. Well, what's the answer to all of this? We love Christ. We imitate Christ. Christ didn't tear people down. He rebuked people. He rebuked Peter. Even when he rebuked Peter, he was not tearing him down and sinning what Paul warns against. He was strong in truth, but he didn't rip people down. He tore down the error and the propagation of error in the false teaching and false teachers. He wasn't tearing people down or biting and devouring people within a community. He never did that. We should imitate Christ. We should be the kindest husband, the kindest father, the kindest mother, the kindest wife, the kindest single person. We should be praying, how can I make that person stronger? How can I support that person better? How can I serve that person within the body of Christ? How can I spend my life to build that person up? Does this sound like to you slavery, that kind of talk, or freedom? That's the question you need to ask yourself. Do you want this kind of Christian freedom where you know and love Christ? This is the ultimate freedom where you do not know and love Christ. You are still enslaved in your flesh. Choose Christ and choose freedom.